Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. You're listening to Gable the Goat or Gable the Greatest of All Time. This episode is brought to you by Wrestling Changed My Life Podcast. It's my weekly show where I interview former Olympians, UFC fighters, national champions, and business leaders to learn how the sport changed their life. For past episodes, please go to WrestlingChangeMyLife.com. And we also have a new apparel line dropping today. We have t-shirts, hoodies, crew necks, tumblers, mugs, you name it. A ton of awesome stuff and all things that I would actually use myself. And as you can imagine, all sales and proceeds go to support the podcast. So please go to WrestlingChangeMyLife.com to check out our online store as well. Last but not least, if you want to stay up to date with the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at Ryan underscore N underscore Warner and on Instagram at Wrestling Change My Life. Now, let's get to it. Gable the Goat is a story about the winningest college wrestling coach of all time, Dan Gable. Gable created a wrestling dynasty at the University of Iowa, winning 15 national titles over his 21 years as head coach. Even more impressive is that Gable also dominated as a wrestler before he ever became a coach. He captured national headlines by going undefeated for seven years throughout high school and college before losing his last collegiate match. I grew up an hour away from the University of Iowa and was a massive Gable fan and cannot wait to bring you this documentary on Dan Gable. Now, without further ado, can I get a drum roll, please? Get the popcorn ready. Get your drinks cool. Get your earbuds in. Please give it up for Gable the Goat. Wrestling for Dan Gable, he was the best. Here's Dan Gable, the Iowa coach. And he took care of us in a way that made us accountable and made us fight. And more importantly, made us want to fight for him. And look at that Iowa man. There's Dan Gable. I was born to be a coach, you know. Iowa has already clinched the team championship. They had done so before. There's only one Dan Gable. I maintain Dan Gable is the greatest motivator in the history of college sports. You can see Dan Gable and, and crew are very excited, really. Very intense, but he's got to be happy with the way the Hawks have gone. And so all these guys that won for me, wow. I, 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 it's like it overwhelmed me for Hawkers satisfaction. In Hawkers in serious trouble here. Hawkers in serious trouble. For the University of Iowa, it was a tremendous day. They wrapped up the team title, the NCAA Wrestling Championships, before the finals began. We begin our story on Memorial Day week in 1964. Dan Gable is a sophomore and has just won his first state title in wrestling. He and his parents have traveled to Harper's Ferry, 100 miles north of Gable's hometown in Waterloo, Iowa, for a fishing trip. Gable's sister, Diane, who was then 19, was set to meet the family Sunday morning. However, she would never make the trip, and what ensued would become one of the great tragedies of Waterloo, Iowa, even to this day. This is Channel 2, Cedar Rapids in Waterloo. This is the WMT News, seen tonight. Good evening. The date is Monday, June 1st, 1964. 
We bring you troubling news on this Memorial Day, reporting the tragic murder of Diane Gable. The slaying took place while the Gable family was away on a fishing trip at Harper's Ferry. Gable is survived by her parents, Mac and Kate, and brother Dan, a sophomore at Waterloo West High School who won a state title in wrestling this year. Funeral arrangements are expected to take place this Thursday. This story was originally reported by George Saucer. When Diane Gable was murdered, it was a horrific shock to the blue-collar town of Waterloo, Iowa. Shortly after Diane's passing, Gable's parents wanted to sell their house. However, Dan, who was only 15 at this time, refused, insisting that the murderer had already taken his sister and wasn't going to take his childhood home. It wasn't long after this that he'd move into Diane's room to be as close to her as possible. On the wrestling mat, Gable had already won a state title as a sophomore, but after his sister passed, his training and intensity went to the extreme. He was working out three to four times a day in high school and completely dominated Iowa high school wrestling, winning three state titles and going undefeated. And keep in mind, back in this time, freshmen weren't eligible to compete on the varsity team, so three was the most you could win. Gable would choose to wrestle at Iowa State, just 90 minutes from his hometown, and continue his dominant ways, winning the NCAA title as sophomore and junior seasons, while also going undefeated. Along the way, he developed a reputation as the most feared wrestler in the country, and once pinned 24 people in a row. Going into the NCAA finals his senior year, he had captured national headlines. Here was a kid who hadn't lost in over seven years of wrestling in this style. He was trying to make history by becoming the first wrestler to go undefeated through high school and college in the modern era. However, Gable would lose. He would lose the last match of his college career, one that would serve as a turning point for the rest of his life. As I look at it, it's, it's controversial, it's, and it's like, why would I say this? But I needed that loss. I needed the loss to really get good. And that's the man right there, Dan Gable. And the loss he's talking about is his loss to Larry Owings, the last collegiate match that Gable ever wrestled, a match that brought his seven-year unbeaten streak to an end. Going into the match, Gable was thought to be unbeatable, but Owings pulled off one of the greatest upsets in wrestling history. And that's where our journey will begin, the 1970 NCAA Wrestling Championships in Evanston, Illinois. The big one coming up here, Dan Gable going for number 181 in a row over Larry Owings. What do you think? Gable was a massive favorite. No one thought Owings would win. But Larry wasn't backing down from the task. He had cut nearly 30 pounds to get to Gable's weight class and made headlines when he told reporters that he was there to beat Dan Gable. Owings came in with five straight pins. He was very audacious. He was telling news outlets, I didn't come here just to win a national title. I came here to beat Dan Gable. That's Mike Chapman, a wrestling historian who was in press row that night. Chapman says that Owings was almost Muhammad Ali-like in his ability to get inside Gable's head. And Gable agrees. He got in my head the day before the tournament started, but I never knew anything about him before that. As match time approached, there was a nervous energy in the crowd. 
and just take yourself there mentally. Right, the arena is sold out, the lights are dimmed with a single spotlight on the wrestling mat in the middle of the floor. Owings described the atmosphere as gladiator-like, with the crowd roaring as they stepped onto the mat. It was so loud, uh, we couldn't hear the referee. He had to yell at us, you know, three feet away for us to hear what he was saying. It was unbelievable. It was just deafening. On Saturday, March 28, 1970, Gable and Owing stepped onto the mat. Well, here we go. There's the champion, Dan Gable, hasn't lost in high school or college. He's a senior, 21 years old, against Larry Owings, who's a sophomore from Hubbard, Oregon. He's lost one bout this year, 133 and lost one. It was time. And so I was in the right place at the right time, and I'm not sure uh, if anybody could have beaten me that night. I mean, I was I was on a real high as far as adrenaline was concerned, you know, and I was I was ready to go. That's Owings. He was feeling good that night, and the results showed. Just 45 seconds into the match, he was up three to two on Gable, and this is where Gable's mind started to play tricks with him. He started feeling tired early into the match. The announcers noticed it. Gable looks a bit tired. Yes, he does. And Gable noticed it right away. And I remember right away walking back to the center saying, God, I feel weak. <laughs> and I, I mean, we're 30, 40 seconds into the match. And I said that to myself. I had to talk myself into wrestling tough, as tough as I could at that time, because being, you know, not effective, the whole match. I had to talk myself. And I don't know if I could have talked myself into going overtime or not. Owings built a lead as big as 6-2. to two. But Gable did what he always did. He started to edge his way back into the match. And with 30 seconds left, he was up by 2. And if you're Dan Gable, the greatest wrestler of all time, if you're up by 2 points with 30 seconds left, this match is over. But Owings was just not to be denied. He took Gable down for two and put him to his back for two more. He's starting down. The two-point takedown. And on his back. Larry Owings just came up clutch in the biggest moment in wrestling history. And when the scramble commenced, there was only three seconds left. And there wasn't enough time for Gable to mount a comeback. The match would end, as would Gable's seven-year unbeaten streak. After the match was over, there was about a 10-minute period where people tried to gather themselves. They were shocked, including Gable's teammates, one of which was Chuck Jean, who was in the finals a few weights up from Gable, and after seeing his captain lose, had decided he wasn't going to wrestle. So Gable finds Chuck in a locker room just below the arena floor. I go what are you doing? He goes, I've never wrestled in the lineup behind you when you lost. And I'm not about to start now. And so I was straight. I mean, I just, boom, I did a flip just like that. I said, Chuck, I said, you want to double hurt me? I said, I just lost. So if you lose, that's another loss on me. I'm the captain of this team. The best thing you could do for me and for this team Get out there and wrestle this match. Chuck Jean did wrestle, and he'd win a national title that night. Next up was the award ceremony, where Gable is standing on the second place podium for the first time in his career. I remember Dan 
head was down at first, and he had his hand up to his face, covering his eyes. And as Gable stood there, the crowd started to give him a standing ovation. And they wouldn't stop until Gable lifted his head up. It was very touching, very emotional. And they, they keep going, they keep going. I keep thinking, would you guys shut up? Come on, shut up. I don't why. I mean, this is great, but I appreciate it. But how do you stop? How do you, how do you stop these guys? So the guy that was handing me the award, he walks over and he goes, Gable, would you look up? That's all they're waiting for. When you look up, they're going to stop. So I looked up. They stopped. Then they went on to Owings. The loss was traumatic for Gable. In fact, a week later, he was still so choked up that he couldn't return any of his parents' phone calls. So his mom gets worried, and she drives up to Ames, Iowa, to his apartment at Iowa State, and finds Gable. The doorbell rings about 6 a.m. <laughs> or early in the morning. She had driven down, knocked on my door. Well, I didn't know, and I, I opened it, and it was her, and I was like in shock. I was like in shock. Because it wasn't like I didn't want to talk to her. And then she slaps me across the face. She slaps me across the face. And all of a sudden, I start talking. This was definitely a turning point for Gable emotionally because he knew he had the support and love of his family. But technically, he knew he had to get better. Especially if he wanted to win the Olympics in 1972, which were just two years away. And so to do that, he studied the Owings match obsessively. I used that match. I deciphered it, you know, exact, you know, the whole match, second by second. Imagine watching one of the most painful experiences of your life over and over in a dark room by yourself because you're that obsessed with getting better. You find the smallest little things that maybe you could have done to, to prevent from this happen. But I think the big thing was this. If I wrestle somebody that can keep up with me, I got to be better than them. So I, I need some more artistic work, I call it. I need some more of what the Russians have. It's hard to overstate just how dominant the Soviet Union was at wrestling. They won every World and Olympic Championship from 1969 through 1991. And the rule of thumb was, if you wanted to be a world champ or Olympic champ, you had to go through a Soviet. And Dan Gable was no exception. The only difference was the Soviets had never seen a wrestler with Gable's pace before, with his cardio, and they weren't ready for it. The, the Russians just simply couldn't take the pace. Early in 1972, Gable was wrestling at the toughest tournament in the world, in Tbilisi, Georgia, in the thick of the Soviet Union. And it's here where he literally made a Soviet wrestler quit during the match because of exhaustion. And Dan just kept, every time they'd go off the mat in a flurry or something, Dan would be right back in the center, and the Russian would take his time getting back there. And finally, near the end of the match, they had a big flurry, and, and the Russian got up and just walked off. He just, he was done. Dan broke him mentally. The Soviet people love good wrestling, and so they love Dan Gable. They began chaining his name in the arena and gave him a Russian bear cloak to commemorate the victory. The place was in shock. And then oh. Dan put on his sweats and started running the bleachers at the far end of the arena. The Soviet coaches would go on a national manhunt 
to find someone that could beat Gable after he won the Tbilisi tournament. Meanwhile, back in Waterloo, Iowa, Dan Gable was ratcheting up his workouts. He was separating himself and was on another level. I firmly believe that Dan Gable hit a peak in 1971 and 72 that's never been equaled in American wrestling. Gable's workout regime during this time had gone from fanatical in college to downright lunacy. He was working out three to four times a day out of his parents' house, which was essentially his training base. His friends, John and Ben Peterson, who would go on to be Olympic champions, were living their training with them. After a run, we would do push-ups, and I remember doing this in his front yard more than once with a deck of cards, and whatever the, uh, the number was on the card, that's how many push-ups you got to do. And if it was an 80, do eight push-ups. If it was a 10, he'd do 10. If it was a three, do three. If it was an ace, he'd do 20, and he'd go all the way through the deck of cards, 52 cards, uh, without stopping. We got a big number, and he'd get a small one, He'd get mad and say, oh, you lucky guys, you get the big ones. So whoever got to do the most push-ups, he was the lucky guy. It wasn't long after this that Gable admitted to a friend, I know I'm not normal. And when it came time to make the Olympic team, it wasn't even close. Gable dominated everyone at his weight class. At the Olympic regional trials in Iowa City, I was there. These are the regional trials. He wrestled six times. He scored six pins, and he outscored him 121 to nothing. After the tournament, Mike Chapman was supposed to give out the Outstanding Wrestler Award. The only problem was no one could find Gable. So I go down the sauna bath, and there he is working out, and I say, you got to come upstairs so I can give you the trophy. So after making the Olympic team, what most people would consider one of the greatest achievements of their life, Gable was in the sauna doing push-ups. It wasn't long after this that he declined a visit to the White House so that he could get an extra workout in. Next up was the 1972 Olympics in Munich, Germany. In Greece, at the altar of the ruined Temple of Zeus, the spirit of yet another Olympic Games is rekindled. This is an ITN newsflash from the Olympic Village in Munich, where early this morning armed Palestinian guerrillas raided the sleeping quarters of the Israeli team. The gunman shot dead two Israelis and are now holding 20 athletes and six officials as hostages. 17 people were slaughtered yesterday, two in the Olympic Village and the other 15 in the shootout at the airport. The 1972 Olympics will forever be remembered as Black September, where 11 Israeli athletes were lost to Palestinian terrorists. But there were some incredible athletic achievements. Mark Spitz won seven gold medals in swimming. Olga Corbett won four in gymnastics for the Soviet Union. And Dan Gable won an Olympic gold medal in wrestling without surrendering a single point. Many say it's one of the greatest performances in American wrestling history. And Dan Gable, our brightest hope for a gold medal at 149 and a half pounds. He brings great credentials. But he's coming on stronger and stronger, Ken. He is a fabulous machine as far as conditioning goes and, and wrestling goes. Gable cruised to the finals, where he met the Soviet Union's Ruslan Atsululiev. Gable won 4 0. Dan Gable has won the gold medal at 149 and a half pounds. A lifetime's worth of work had paid off for Dan Gable. 
and he'd say it was the happiest moment of his life. That's what I've been working for all my life, and I won it, and it's the greatest feeling I've ever had. Well, Dan, congratulations. As Gable was on the podium with the national anthem playing, his mind went into kind of like a highlight reel, and he said he saw all kinds of images from his childhood, but most pronounced was his sister Diane. She was there with him at that moment. Just visualize her right there. I mean, she was right there. I don't know. She was right there on the floor with me or whatever. The next day, Gable would get a workout in with the Greco-Roman team. He'd return to Iowa as a hero and a star in the wrestling community. And he was the first amateur wrestler to become a national figure. He'd go on the Dick Cavett show, as well as the popular game show, To Tell the Truth. And our job, as always, is to find out who truly is Dan Gable. Let us meet now our Olympic gold medal winner. Number one, what is your name, please? My name is Dan Gable. My name is Dan Gable. My name is Dan Gable. This is around the time where the name Dan Gable became synonymous with wrestling. And shortly after winning the 1972 Olympics, Gable would take an assistant coaching job with the University of Iowa a non-wrestling powerhouse. But soon, the greatest dynasty in the history of college wrestling would take hold. Tonight I'm gonna pick myself a fight. In the early 1970s, the University of Iowa was not a sports powerhouse. They had never won a national title in wrestling, and their crown jewel, the football team, was in the middle of a 20-year losing streak. The University of Iowa football team was in the middle of a 20-year non-winning streak. That meant in 20 years, they hadn't had a winning season. Iowa fans were starved for a winner. And the wrestling team wasn't helping. They weren't the worst, but they also weren't the best. And they were lucky to draw a couple hundred fans to watch a duel meet. Mike Chapman was living in Iowa City at the time covering the Hawks. I walked into this auxiliary gym in the old field house. There were like 200 fans there. Iowa was wrestling Michigan State. That's indelibly stamped in my mind how unimportant and how minor wrestling was to everybody. Iowa was not a factor. I mean, it was just was not a factor in wrestling. Tim Johnson is considered the voice of Iowa wrestling. He's covered more than 500 dual meets as a sportscaster. Iowa was not even in the conversation. It was Oklahoma State. Then Dan Gable and Iowa come along. And then they start winning. So now all these Hawkeye fans who are star for a winner in anything become wrestling fans because they're winning. So it's just a rolling ball that starts. They're winning, they got Gable. And after four years as the assistant, Gable was named head coach in 1976. And that's when the buzz really started. Because in Iowa, Wrestling is king. It's the most popular sport. Ask someone from outside Iowa to describe our state in three words. You'll likely get corn, farmers, and wrestling. Those are three good ones right there. Even high school wrestling is big in Iowa. I mean, the Iowa high school wrestling state finals are broadcast to every household via Iowa public television. This is an educated fan base. And as soon as Gable and Iowa start winning, the fans show up to support them. And Iowa begins selling out wrestling matches. 10,000, 12,000 people there to watch the Hawks wrestle. Oh, yeah, it was exciting. It, it, it was 
It was un- unquestionably e- exciting. It was fun to be there. John Irving is a best-selling author and was in Iowa City during the beginning of the Gable era. But, but Gable, he had such a, an old business honesty about him. He won your respect by, by, by saying, uh, if you love something and you want to be as good as you can at it, you got to do it more and harder than everybody else. And that was the Gable M.O. You work harder and more intense than anyone else, and you're going to win. And that was the philosophy he had as a wrestler. And so he takes this insane work ethic that made him one of the top wrestlers in the world and channeled it into coaching. And from day one, it was abundantly clear to his assistants just how hard he was willing to go to be the best. Yeah, Gable has a uniqueness that he attracts great athletes to him, but his secret, I've always said, has been hard work. You know, he worked at wrestling all the time. Mark Johnson was a 1980 Olympian. He was one of Gable's right-hand men as an assistant coach. But in college, he went to Michigan. And when he first got to Iowa City to coach with Gable, he couldn't believe how hard the Hawkeyes are working. I mean, it was just so totally different than what I experienced at, at, at Michigan. I just was just a different level. I'm not, I loved Michigan at the time, but getting there and, and the work ethic and, you know, even with the coaches, you know, when I was an assistant coach, I worked out almost every single day wrestling with the guys. The program was starting to take shape at Iowa. Gable had his staff in place and was transforming the mentality and work ethic of his athletes. And in his second year, 1978, Gable won his first national title. The Hawks would win again in 79 and 80. The dynasty was off and running. I'd say by the time um, 81, 82 started coming, it was pretty much, we were pretty much kicking butt, yeah. 81 was a watershed moment for Iowa. They won their fourth title and had the championship locked up before the finals began Saturday night. Iowa has already clinched the team championship. They had done so before. Iowa also crowned two individual champions that night, Ed and Lou Bannon, twin brothers who grew up in an adopted household in upstate New York. Bannon does have his hands locked. He's got the near side cradle, and he's got Baumgartner in trouble. He's going to get Now he's going to get the pin. He He got got him. So both Bannon brothers have scored pins for Iowa. From the outside looking in, it may have seemed like magic what Gable was able to do with the Hawks year in and year out, winning at the highest level. But the Iowa guys knew better. It was about the work and intensity that they brought to practice every single day. Ed Bannock, three-time national champ and Olympic gold medalist, takes us inside the Iowa room. Gable always started practices at 4 o'clock. And at 4 o'clock, when you showed up, you didn't stop till 6 o'clock. You walked in that room, and it was it was as intensive a situation I've ever been in. And uh, it was like, holy cow. And it was day after day after day after day. Practice was a sacred time for Gable. As an athlete, he spent the majority of his life there. And as a coach, he would do the same. And what Gable loved, what really got him excited was pushing guys to new levels. Because he believed that we never tap our full potential. And so he'd use practice to get the most out of guys. And he was able to do that 
because he knew each person at an individual level. He knew those guys and what made them tick so well. So guys felt like they could really go to Gable. They, they hung out in our, in our office all the time. He respected you, he respected him, and he got the most out of you. He knew how to push the buttons. Barry Davis was a three-time national champ for the Hawks. One particular practice, Gable was all over Barry, trying to get him to a new level. And one of Gable's favorite tactics was to put his starters in the middle of the mat and rotate fresh guys in on him. And all the while, Gable is coaching the backup guy. And that's what happened to Barry. So Barry's been going for about 30 minutes. And the backup guy finally gets a takedown on him. As you can imagine, Barry's fuming mad. He's just about ready to escape and get back to his feet. When Gable calls practice. Just I'm getting ready to get away. He walked over literally about six inches from my face and goes, Time. They go, are you freaking kidding me? What do you mean time? It's not time. So the intensity is running high. The wrestling room is probably 80 degrees. Barry's been going for a while, and Gabe was starting to get in his head now. And right when this happens, Barry snaps and tells Gable, F him, F you, and F your mom. So now the whole practice kind of stops, and everyone looks at Gable to see what he's going to do. He goes, hey, what'd you say? He goes, and he goes, don't you ever talk about my mom that way. You call me that, but not my mother. And, you know, I felt bad, really bad when I said that. But he brought, he, he got so deep in my soul, in my mind, I was just furious. But he loved that. Gable may not have loved the mom comment, but he did love getting underneath guy's skin and taking in the new levels, both mentally and physically. And that's what he wanted. Once he got that, you know what? He knew you are ready for battle. Going into the 1982 season, the wrestling world would see just how far Gable would go to help his guys. The story in question is wrestling folklore and took place at the 1982 Nationals at Iowa State. Beautiful Hilton Coliseum, seating capacity about 14,000, sold out today. The story involves Barry Davis, who was cutting a ton of weight to make 118. Two weeks before the Nationals, Barry's cutting weight for the Big Tens, and it gets to him. He snaps. He quits the team, and so Gable goes on a manhunt across town to find him. He finally finds him at a grocery store with a bag of donuts in his hand, and all Barry can say is, Coach, I didn't eat nothing yet. Coach Gable to the rescue once again. Barry makes weight and wins the Big Tens. Fast forward two weeks, and we're in the same situation. Barry's losing weight for the Nationals. Gable walks in the room to check on him and make sure he's okay and goes, hey, I'm leaving for the Nationals tonight. Do you want to ride with me? Barry goes, no, I'll be fine. And as soon as Coach Gable left and the door closed behind him, Barry gets off the bike and chases after Gable because he knew he needed him to shed those last few pounds. I jumped off the bike, ran through the locker room, and I go, Coach Gable, Coach Gable. Hold on, I'll go with you. He just looked around the corner and goes, I thought so. He was waiting. He was just waiting for me because he knew me that well. And he knew his ethics. That, okay, I got goosebumps right now, man. Yeah. Look at that. He just knew his ethics that well. So Barry, Gable, and Gable's family head off to Ames, Iowa for the Nationals. 
The next morning, Gable takes Barry out to a country road. And here's the scene. Gable and Barry are running in plastic suits. Coach Gable's wife is driving the Suburban with Gable's kids in the back. And after Gable thinks Barry's ran enough to lose the weight, he tells his wife, Kathy, Roll up the windows and turn the heat on high. And they go, what? So Barry and Gable jump back into the Suburban when their sweat's still going, and now they're en route to the tournament. But it's really hot in the Suburban, and the kids want to roll the window down. Gable was having none of it. Man, Dad, Dad, can we roll the windows down? Are you kidding me? No, don't you, Kathy, don't you dare turn those windows down like that. You understand me? We're the NCAA championships. The windows stayed up. Barry made weight, and he won the Nationals for Iowa, and Iowa won their fifth straight team title. All was well in Iowa City. And there it is. At the end of the match, Davis wins it at 118 pounds, and the University of Iowa has clinched a fifth consecutive national championship, and a brilliant piece of strategy, Mark. At this point, Gable and the Hawks had just won their fifth national title, which is an incredible feat, no doubt. But it wasn't just the winning. It was the way they were winning and the style at which the Iowa guys wrestled. It was known simply as the Iowa style. The Iowa style was very physical, and it was transformative. The Iowa style was super aggressive. It was in your face. It was go, go, go. And you weren't going to stop until the match was over. Right? You were focused on scoring as many points as you could so that you could break your opponent both physically as well as mentally. And there was never a situation where an Iowa guy was allowed to just coast to a victory. Eddie Bannock breaks it down for us. It was the situation where you're going to go into this wrestling meet and you're going to go at such a high rate, such a high speed, that they they got to try to keep up if they can. And 99.9% of the time, they couldn't. We just put the pedal to the metal. If you can hang out with us, you can. That's fine. And even if the Hawks' opponents could keep up with the relentless style of wrestling that Iowa brought to the table, the Iowa style gave Gable's guys a psychological advantage because their opponents knew that they were going to be in for an absolute battle when they stepped on the mat against an Iowa guy? Well, I think the perception was that they were physical. You were going to be in a battle. And you better bring your best game. Leroy Smith was a national champion for Oklahoma State. He and his brothers won seven national titles for the Cowboys. He created, his wrestlers were so physical. Um, but they weren't just physical and well-conditioned. They were focused on scoring points and getting pins. They, they, they put it to work for them. Iowa looks just as tough as they can be here tonight in this big showdown of Hilton College. It wasn't like the Iowa guys were immune from getting tired. It was that Gable and his coaches pushed the guys so hard in the room that by the time they stepped on the mat, they were ready for anything. And their confidence reflected that. When we went out there, it wasn't a situation where we were arrogant and we said we're going to win. It was, we paid the price. We've worked really hard. So winning is going to come from that hard work. And it's just, it's like one plus one equals two. There's no two ways about it. It's going to happen. So 
that's what we did. We went out and dominated. The Hawks have got it rolling now, and it's going to be up to So, we in Iowa was just trying to just totally dominate people. So we scarred people mentally. And that's the way that Gable and the Iowa fans liked it. For after all, Iowa people are working people. They're blue collar. Iowans are tough mentally and physically. Think of the people that settled this land. And Gable fed right into that mentality. He was the, he was the perfect Abraham Lincoln, Babe Ruth type hero for Iowa. As the 83-84 college wrestling season kicked off, Gable's stardom in Iowa continued to rise. He and the Hawks were essentially Iowa's pro team, and they were treated like superstars. When we traveled as a team, like an entourage, people just couldn't wait to see us. It was, it was unbelievable. You know, they want to be part of you. They want to touch you. You know, pictures with you. Just like, hey, there's so-and-so. Walk to the airport. People stop Gable. Talk to him all the time. Gable's stardom got so big that he'd have to go sit in his truck to do office work, to do paperwork, and to get some peace and quiet before practice. Get no privacy. Everybody wanted the piece of Dan Gable. So it was like somebody would sit in his truck in the parking lot and do his work. Built something by the office. Gable, Gable here? He's sitting in his truck outside the Carver and do paperwork because you couldn't get away from anybody. When Barry mentions that Gable is sitting in his truck outside of Carver, he means Carver Hawkeye Arena, the most iconic venue to watch a wrestling match anywhere in the world. Carver first opened its doors in 1983, and its first event wasn't a basketball game. You guessed it. It was a wrestling match against Oklahoma. 10,000 people showed up. Today, there's a statue of Gable outside Carver Hawkeye. While coaching at Carver, Gable's record was 98 wins and one loss. But back in the 80s, it was a place of worship for the Iowa fans. And things got rowdy. Real rowdy at Carver Hawkeye. When they introduced us, we walked out of the tunnel, you could just, you could just feel the fans, man. Boom. You know, like football games, all the home team would give their tickets away to the visitors. Nah. Went too many visitors because there wasn't much room for them. There was, you know, over 90% or more Hawkeye fans. You know, and they, they want us to bring it, and we did too. Carver Hawkeye provided a serious home mat advantage for the Hawks. And the two biggest matches that an Iowa fan could watch at Carver were either Oklahoma State or Iowa State. All my brothers had some great experiences. <laughs> they wouldn't call them great, but they had some interesting experiences at Carver Hawkeye Arena. When Leroy Smith and his brother John Smith, who'd go on to coach Oklahoma State, would travel up to Iowa City to Carver Hawkeye Arena, Leroy's dad, a diehard Cowboy fan, would respond in kind to the Hawkeye fans by firing the Oklahoma State pistols at the Iowa fans anytime Oklahoma State won. My dad would go to the duels, and he would even go with the team, John's team, up to Iowa. And he had always, we had these, oh, Oklahoma State has these pistols firing where you got your, put your thumb and your index finger out, and you, you shoot at people with them. And, and my dad really <laughs> enjoyed doing that to the to the fans there in Carver-Hawkeye Arena when, when OSU would get the upper hand. As big as the Oklahoma State-Iowa match was at Carver, there was no question that when Iowa State was in town, it was as loud and as packed as it would ever be. And it's no coincidence 
that the loudest Carver Hawk I ever got was Iowa, Iowa State. And the situation was this. Dan Gable, who had never lost in Carver Hawk at this point in time, he had won 43 dual meets as the head coach at Iowa and lost zero. However, this time, Iowa State was up big going into the 190-pound match. Their defending national champ, Eric Volker, was going up against Iowa's unknown sophomore, Brooke Simpson. Simpson was a big underdog, but he had to win to keep Gable streak alive. Brooke Simpson. Well, there's no doubt who's the favorite here, but I have a feeling that Simpson's the kind of young man that says, okay, this is where I'm at. And the way Carver's built, it's a big bowl that sits in the ground with the top row at ground level and then 42 rows down is the wrestling mat. And on this night, it was loud. The band had the drums going. The crowd was cheering. And even though Volker was up, Simpson pulls the old school elbow roll and pins Volker. The place went insane. Simpson through the move. Uh-oh, Volker's in trouble. Volker's in serious trouble here. Volker's in serious trouble. is just absolutely stunned. It was unbelievable just how dominant Gable and the Hawks were at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. And at this point in the mid-80s, if you weren't an Iowa fan, you hated the Hawks. It was to the point where at the national tournaments, if an Iowa guy was wrestling, the whole arena would cheer against the Hawkeye. Gable and the Iowa guys loved it. They love being the bad boys of college wrestling. Iowa would win the 1983 Nationals. And Iowa has begun to escape. Dominating these matches a little bit here now. Two to one is the score. Half They'd win again in 1984 to make it seven straight. Dan Gable had now tied John Wooden's record for seven straight titles. The winning got to a point where fans actually said that Dan Gable and Iowa were bad for college wrestling. It didn't matter. In 1985, they won again to make it eight straight. The University of Iowa under Dan Gable has made it eight straight. Eight consecutive NCAA wrestling championships. They've also Imagine being so good that people say you're bad for the sport. And that's obviously what happened with Gable and the Hawks, as it does with the Patriots and any other team that wins. But what was so incredible about Dan Gable is that he had done the same thing as an athlete. And now he was doing it again as a coach. But underneath the surface, cracks were starting to emerge. So even though we win in 83, 84, 85, our team was going downhill because of me and the lack of discipline. The humility and the discipline that got the Hawks there was starting to wane a little bit. The winning was getting to them. So we were actually getting pretty damn good. And as early as 82, 83, we were losing track of what we built our program on. We, we built our program on some really good, solid attitude. But we were, we were losing that, that humbleness a little bit that you still always need to be able to go and get better. We were so good that we could still win the Nationals and not be at that really upper level 
mentality and discipline. I should use the word discipline. I came from the mud. There's dirt on my hands. Strong like a tree. There's roots where I stand. We won in 83, won in 84, 85, and 86. Four years in a row on just, we were good. But we started losing our dedication, discipline, respect from people, getting some people arrested, too many parties. I mean, a lot of fans fit right into the parties too. And this is when Iowa started to develop a reputation for their off the mat antics. What I kind of liked about them, we all like to get together and have have a celebrate a little bit on occasion. So they they worked hard and they played hard. I, I was definitely that work hard, play hard. Our motto is work hard, play hard, and stay hard. That's Randy Lewis, Olympic champion and two-time national champ for Gable and the Hawkeyes. Gable would purposely have practice at 7 in the morning instead of 9 in the morning because he wanted to make me on Saturday and not go downtown Friday night. And I said, Gable, why are you doing that? You know, you know I'm going to go out anyways. By the mid-80s, the work hard, play hard mentality was personified by two Hawkeyes in particular, Royce Alger and Brad Penrith. Well, you know, I, I, it was a little rambunctious. Is that, is that the word I'm looking for? That's Brad Penrith. He was a national champ for the Hawks and was roommates with Royce Alger. They were roommates. What a mistake. What a mistake. You put the two most craziest guys as far as wanting to party and, and having a crazy time together in the same room. And it did not take long for Penrith and Alger to get in some trouble in Iowa City, where the drinking age was 18 and the Hawks were superstars. They got kicked out of the dorms the freshman year. But you know what they did? They pitched a tent out in the yard right outside their dorm room. Yeah, Royce got kicked out of the dorm. He went out uh, in the quad there, and he actually set a tent up. And for the last about two months of school, he lived in that tent. So Royce, a two-time national champ for Gable, is living in the tent, and the antics continue to roll on. We definitely uh, played hard, but we also worked extremely hard. And Even with the partying, the Hawks were still focused on winning wrestling matches. But things got a little bit looser outside of practice. And the unwritten rule was... If you ever go out drinking, you have to work out by... Get, get to the gym by 9 a.m. to start your workout. And if you didn't show up for practice... You know, Gable would track you down. Back then, you know, if you missed a practice, you know, Gable would put you through his own personal practice. And no one wanted that. You know, if you did it once, you'd never want to do it again. And the shenanigans didn't stop with the wrestlers. Even Gable himself noticed that he was coming home a bit later and probably indulging a little more than he should. I noticed myself coming home later. Uh, not, you know, I mean, I, I always stayed after prayer. I was the last guy there every night. But all of a sudden, I'd stop at a bar, have a beer. But somebody would buy me a beer. You know, I'd end up instead of staying for 15 minutes, I'd stay for an hour. I'd get home. By the time I got home, gosh, the three kids are in bed. And whether I, if I took him to school that morning at early, I might have saw him. But if I didn't because of early practice or something, then I didn't see him all day. 
So, you know, so I'm, I'm starting to think, man, I got to get my live streamed up. The work hard, play hard mentality was starting to wear on Gable and the Hawks. Meanwhile, cross-state rival, Iowa State, they were rebuilding. And they just hired a new head coach in Jim Gibbons. Gibbons was 26 years old when he was hired and was the youngest coach in D1 wrestling. As a kid, though, he grew up in Ames, Iowa, and was around when Dan Gable was wrestling there in the early 70s. It had a big impression on him. You know, I, I was at Dan Gable night. So Gibbons, as a young kid, is going to the Iowa State wrestling room and watching firsthand just how hard Gable was working. We, we used to go up to the practices, so we were exposed at a very early age to, you know, great wrestling and, and being part of that program, and, and just, it just made a difference. Gable and Gibbons also had a chance encounter right before Gibbons was named the head coach at Iowa State. They kind of randomly found each other at the Salt Lake City Airport. Gibbons was going to watch his brother wrestle at an all-star meet, and Gable was coaching the all-star meet. And so the greatest coach in college wrestling offers Gibbons to ride his car. He had to take the offer. Gable invites me to, hey, why don't you just jump in the car with us? So now Gibbons has Gable in the car for the next hour. I said, well... This is my chance, all right? So I just started asking him everything under the sun. Ask him how he ran his wrestling camps. Ask him how he, he uh, uh, you know, training guys and, and uh, recruiting. And, and uh, you know, these are th some of the things that I did, uh, observed from afar. After that car ride, Gibbons would be named the head coach and set his sights squarely on building teams that could beat Iowa. We had to put together the types of teams that put up Iowa-type points if you're going to beat Gable. You couldn't beat Gable by being just as, as, as... You had to have... what was You had to find an edge. So Gibbons and Iowa State have a target on Iowa. That's their sole mission is to beat these guys. Because if they do that, they're probably going to win the Nationals. Their first chance would come early in the 86 season. It was a cold winter night. Iowa State was at Iowa. 14,000 fans showed up. It did not go well for Iowa State. Gable and the Hawks dominated to a 25-9 victory. Jim Gibbons. He's learning something about uh, what it's going to take to catch this Iowa team this year because so far it's been a disappointing meet for Iowa State. Fast forward two months. It's the second meeting between Iowa and Iowa State. The Hawks were ranked number one, and Iowa State was number two. They had won every duel since getting beat by Iowa early in the year. We're back at Hilton Coliseum in Ames for the big rematch between the number one ranked Iowa Hawkeyes and the number two ranked Iowa State Cyclones. Keep in mind that Dan Gable was on a 36 match dual winning streak and he hadn't lost to Iowa State since 1981 when his heavyweight Lou Bannock was pinned in somewhat of a fluke situation. A weight burn down there on Lou Bannock. Watch that referee's hand. Watch that. Right he did it. And it's Iowa oh. State. Look at that crowd. Iowa State fans have been clinging on to that last win for five years. But in 1986, in the second duel of the season against Iowa, the Cyclones were peaking, whereas Iowa, their lack of discipline was starting to manifest itself with weight issues. In the morning of the duel, the Hawks had two guys who were more than eight pounds over. One of them was Brad Penrith, and the other was Iowa's 118-pounder, 
Matt Eglin. You know, Eglin had a little trouble making weight today. Yes, he was having some trouble all the way until noon, I believe, and, and he's sort of a fast starter. As you can imagine, cutting that much so close to match time is detrimental to performance, and Iowa State took it to the Hawks. So we kind of took it to him, starting with Perry Summit, who, who ended up uh, pinning Matt Eglin, who had a really difficult time controlling his weight. And so that was our opportunity right then and to, to kind of switch things around a little bit in the duel. And that was a big start for Iowa State. And next up was Iowa's Brad Penrith, who at this time was an unproven sophomore who had never wrestled in an Iowa-Iowa State net. To 126, Brad Penrith of Iowa against Bill Kelly, two tough guys. Kelly has the single leg. He has the takedown. Penrith would lose the match. Admittedly, it wasn't his best performance. I wrestled uh, terrible, and I do remember Gable said, you know, get your running shoes on. Penrith would proceed to run for the next 45 minutes for what Gable deemed a lack of effort during the match, a criminal offense in the mind of Dan Gable. The rest of the duel was competitive, but Iowa State would win, snapping Iowa's five-year win streak over the Cyclones. It was a huge moment for Iowa State. The school president rushed the mat, and the Iowa State wrestlers lifted Gibbons under their shoulders. Meanwhile, in the Iowa locker room, Gable wasn't pleased. He thought the Hawkeyes wrestled flat and a little lethargic. And more importantly, he only had four weeks left in the 86 season to get Iowa back on track and motivated to win a ninth straight national title. And this is where we see the genius of Dan Gable come out in spades. His ability to motivate people was unlike anything in college wrestling at this time. Once again, we turn to our good friend Mike Chapman to break it down for us. I maintain Dan Gable is the greatest motivator in the history of college sports. And let's be clear, we're not just talking about motivation for motivation's sake. We're talking about Gable playing mind games to get his guys ready to peak at the national tournament, to wrestle their very best when it mattered most. And one of Gable's biggest question marks coming out of the Iowa State loss was Brad Penrith. He had shown signs of brilliance earlier in the season, but was wrestling flat. And so Gable used an evening conditioning workout to rebuild Penrith's confidence. And what happened was, Gable had just made the Iowa guys run around the top of Carver Hawkeye for the better part of an hour. And this isn't like an eight minute mile run, these are sprints. And to finish off the workout, he wanted his starters to run Buddy Carey sprints up 42 rows of bleachers at Carver Hawkeye with someone on their back. And so Royce Alger draws the unlucky stick and has Gable on his back, who of course is doing everything he can to make this as difficult as possible for Royce in an attempt to break him mentally. Royce had Gable on his back. And Royce is over there complaining and bitching the whole time. Gable, pick your feet up. Gable. So Gable's, you know, on Royce's back, but he's dragging his feet on the stairs. Meanwhile, Penrith has finished his five sprints and is headed to the locker room and just can't resist giving Gable a little verbal jab as he walks by him. As I walk by Gable, I give him a smart react. I go, I'm, I'm like this. Is that it? Like a smart ass. As you can imagine, 
This wasn't the smartest thing to say to Gable at the end of a brutal workout. As I walked by, he got a hold of my arm. He had a freaking bear grip, stronger than hell. And he got a hold of my hand. I couldn't pull my arm back. He goes, he goes, uh, I was counting yours. You only did four. I go, yeah, nice try. I, I did five. He goes, oh, nope, you, uh, you only did four. I was counting. Penrith tried to call bullshit, but Gable was having none of it. He was adamant that Penrith had only done four sprints when the requirement was five. He goes, no, I, I'm seriously, I count him. You only did four. I go, well, I'm sorry. My partner's not here. And I started pulling away, kind of snapped me back. He goes, uh, I'll, I'll just get on your back. So Penrith lines up at the bottom of Carver Hawkeye to sprint up the bleachers for his sixth and final sprint with Gable on his back. Ready? About halfway up, Penrith can't take another step. His legs are shaking. And so Gable leans forward and whispers in his ear. He whispers in my ear, crawl, crawl. So I start crawling up the stairs. Right as he gets to the top and he thinks he's done with the workout, Gable tells Penrith to put his wrestling shoes on and go wrestle for another 20 minutes. It seemed like madness, but Gable had a plan. You know, and he wanted you to drill while you're exhausted so you can hit your technique when you're tired. Finally, Penrith is done. He's in the shower. His legs are shaking. And he notices a certain presence. It's Gable in his street clothes standing next to Penrith to build him back up. Gable's standing right there beside me. He's fully dressed. He goes, did you hear Royce? Did you hear Royce today? He giggles. Did you hear him? He was breaking. Did you hear him? And I started laughing. I go, yeah. He goes, he goes you, that's how much more mentally tough than you are than Royce. Turns around and walks away. So he said that to me. <laughs> and I just, and I, and, I, and I really believe I am not only more tougher than Royce. It seems like nothing. A simple sentence here, a workout there. But it worked. Penrith won the 1986 Nationals, and Iowa won their ninth straight title. For the University of Iowa, it was a tremendous day. They wrapped up the team title, the NCAA Wrestling Championships, before the finals began. Not only that, the 1986 Iowa team broke every record in the books. And this was just four weeks after they had lost to Iowa State. They broke the record for most champs. They had five individual national champs out of the 10 weight classes. The biggest point margin, the most points. Meanwhile, Iowa State finished fourth. And even if they doubled their point total, they still wouldn't have beat Iowa. It was a brutal setback for Gibbons and the Cyclones. Everybody was upset, mad, disappointed, and they had all the, all the emotions that, a, that, a, that a, a true winner uh, should have at that point in time with what transpired. It's funny how setbacks can create the biggest opportunities in the long run. And Gibbons was intent on using this as motivation for his team going into the 1987 season. And, um, and it really became the basis of uh, the following year because we just wrestled with an, an edge and, 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 and with, the, with the tournament mind at all times. Heading in to the 1987 season, history was on the line. No team in college sports history had ever won 10 consecutive team championships. John Wooden had won seven in a row, and a couple other teams had won nine in a row, but no team had won 10. And to celebrate this monumental season, Gable stitched a Roman numeral X onto the left leg of the Iowa singlet, 
to commemorate the 10th national title. This was Iowa's arrogance at its best. Most of the fans loved it, but even some of the Hawkeyes thought it was over the top. I was pissed off about it. I just thought it was over overboard. The team poster that year also had the Roman numeral X prominently displayed on the front. Gibbons had it hanging in his living room so that he saw it every morning before going to work. I had that poster sitting in my, uh, uh, posted up in my living room closet. It's a tip of the cap that I have today that they were, you know, who, who else has been able to put them in a position to put the X on the same one? Even to this day, I can't believe that Gable would put the Roman numeral X on the singlet. I love it, but it just shows that the satisfaction that Gable got from watching his guys win was overtaking his good judgment and that he was letting things slip out of control. And so all these guys that won for me, wow. I, 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 it's like overwhelmed me. It overwhelmed me for satisfaction and I, to the point where I almost lost it. During the 1987 season, things would continue to slip for Iowa. They lost dual meets to Penn State and Iowa State, but as the year tapered down, just like always, Gable somehow found a way to beat Iowa State in the second duel of the year and won their 14th consecutive Big Ten championships. And even with the losses, even with the ineligibility issues, and even with all the drama surrounding the program, Gable and his top assistant, Mark Johnson, were still expecting to win a 10th straight NCAA team championship. You look at back at those, a lot of those years, there was always a, uh, you know, a loss or two. Sometimes it, I think we were undefeated, but there were times that we had lost, but we'd always put it together for the national tournament. And the expectations were, yeah, that was going to happen. And that takes us to the 1987 NCAA wrestling tournament in College Park, Maryland. And for those of you who don't know, the NCAA wrestling tournament is one of the toughest events in college sports. It all starts on Tuesday with the teams traveling in. Tuesday is usually a travel day. Wednesday, you see the competition, the hair gets on the back of your neck. And then wrestling gets underway Thursday morning. So now all of a sudden you wrestle a, a, a full day on Thursday, and by Friday a lot of guys are wore out, you know, just emotionally. And who can blame them? The whole time you're wrestling the absolute best guys in the country and you're making weight each morning. And by the time you get to Saturday, it's the finals, which is the premier night of wrestling for the entire season of college wrestling. No question about it. The highest level is the national title, Saturday night. And on that Saturday, March 21st, 1987, Iowa State had five in the finals to Iowa's four. But the Hawks were in serious trouble. To win their 10th straight title, they'd need to sweep all of their matches. And meanwhile, Iowa State would need to lose all of theirs. The odds were stacked against Gable. Five yet to go. Iowa is really up against it, as you can see, trailing Iowa State by 12 points. The first match of the TV broadcast would feature Royce Alger versus Kevin Jackson, a future three-time world champion. However, this night, Royce would get it done and win a national championship for Gable. Next up was Brad Penrith, the defending national champ who would face Iowa State's Bill Kelly, the same Bill Kelly who beat Penrith the year before 
in Ames, Iowa. Now the first time today that you see an Iowa State wrestler win a match, then the competition for the team championship is over. Iowa State will have clinched as soon as that... And once the match got underway, Penrith was controlling it. He took Kelly down early with a single leg attack. 126 pounder, here he is in on a single leg, trying to convert the takedown, trying to bring his opponent to the mat, and he gets it, that's two points. So a 2-0 lead now for... As the match went on, it was close, but Penrith was controlling it. And with 50 seconds left, he was up 3-2 when he shot another single leg takedown. I remember I hit a shot, and I was, I was shooting a lot in the match. You know, Penrith took a half shot, and uh, he was sh uh, uh, shooting to hang on as opposed to trying to finish the technique, and sometimes that's the worst place to be. You know, I, I was kind of coming up and kind of turning the corner, and I stumbled backwards. Uh, you know, he bumped me a little bit, but I stumbled, and he stepped in, and he spl splatled me. 52 seconds to go. Penrith leading by one point in what has been a tentative match. A great shot. There's a two-point takedown. He's going to pin him here. He's very, very close. Billy Kelly from Iowa State has the match locked up. He's holding his opponent on his back. He'll get three points. There's the fall. And there's the team championship for Iowa State. Dan Gable's nine it took a few seconds for Penrith to realize what happened. Did this happen? Uh, holy cow. Iowa State would win the 1987 Nationals, ending Gable's run for 10 straight titles. The Cyclones wrestled an unbelievable tournament, and for Gibbons, it was a relief as much as anything. You can't believe, you, you just don't know how hard it is at that point in time to, to, to be the team that takes them out. For Gable, it was a time of reflection. It took that loss from Gibbons' loss to really kind of start me analyzing the program kind of like I did when I lost to Owings going back you know so I'm going back and I'm and I'm learning you know from 83 84 I'm looking and I'm saying you know some of these people that did call me or, or maybe I got a bad uh, write-up about the wrestling team or something you know they, they got some they have a legitimate beef you know I, I would never admit that that before yeah. it took a loss for me to get humbled and really look at what we had going and I uh, realized that we need to turn this around. And that's where we'll pick things up on part two of Gable the Goat. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It's been a real honor to produce this documentary, and I can't wait to bring you part two. In the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast and check out our weekly show, Wrestling Changed My Life. Also, if you want to support the show, please go to store.wrestlingchangemylife.com. We greatly appreciate you tuning in. Have a great day. God bless.